open your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app, if you would please, to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 13 is where we'll be spending our time today. Luke chapter 13, beginning in 1, verse 1 that is, and going through verse 9. And in honor of the authority and sufficiency of God's holy word, if you're physically able, would you please stand and follow along silently as I read aloud Luke chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than All the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it, and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So let's get right to it. Verse 1, Luke says, There were some present, look at that phrase, at that very time. Now that phrase, at that very time, connects what we read today with the discourse that began, quite frankly, a chapter earlier in Luke 12, verse 1. And if you're keeping score, this is the third time Jesus has been interrupted. In verse 13, he was interrupted by someone who said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. In verse 41, he was interrupted by the apostle Peter himself saying, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And now, since Jesus was teaching on judgment, it naturally raised questions in the minds of the hearers. And so this time in verse 1, it says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Luke is referring to something here that the original readers would have known what they were talking about, but we're at a bit of a disadvantage since we don't. And the scriptures don't tell us exactly what they're referring to when they talk about this incident. It doesn't really matter all that much though, if you really think about it. For example, if you were to ask me uh, how old I was and I responded to you, I'm 43. I was born during the year of the child. On the one hand, you got your answer. And on the other hand, you may not know exactly what I meant by the year of the child. But fun fact, 1979 was declared the year of the child. It had nothing to do with my birth, actually. Uh, I thought it did. I was born in January. I thought maybe I set the trajectory for the entire year. I did not. Uh, The UN had declared 1979 the year of the child uh, in an attempt to call attention to problems that affected children throughout the world, including malnutrition and lacking access to education. Now, I could tell you 
you, I'm 43. I was born during the year of the child. And you could be like, I don't really get what the year of the child, but I know his age. I asked his age. I don't know what that other thing was, but I know his age. It's similar here in the text where we don't know exactly what is being spoken about, but I would venture to say you don't exactly have to know what is being spoken about. Historically speaking, you can still understand the word of God, even not understanding exactly what is being referred to there. But I did a little studying. I'll give you what I think it probably is talking about. Historically, what is likely being referred to here is this. Certain Galileans were likely involved in some sort of rebellious act against the Romans, who subsequently tracked them down in Jerusalem and, quite frankly, slaughtered them there. The incident likely took place on temple grounds, since that's the only place where sacrifices could be made. It probably happened during Passover, when large numbers of Jews would be in the city Offering sacrifices. So when you take the very real and present tension that existed between Rome and the Jews and you couple that with Pilate's brutality because he was a brutal ruler, what likely happened was Pilate sent his soldiers into the place where Jews were making sacrifices and slaughtered the Galilean Jews then and there. And so in verse 1, where it says, There were some at the present time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That is probably what they are referring to. That was an event that did happen. Whether or not that's the actual event that is being referred to here isn't really known. And again, it doesn't really matter for you to understand the text. The question being posed was this. Were those Galileans worse sinners than those who were slaughtered on that day were the other Galileans who survived who 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 weren't um who were or the other Jews who survived who were not slaughtered by the Romans were those who were slaughtered by the Romans worse sinners because a a calamity had befallen them and so is this God's judgment on them and therefore those who survived were not being judged by God skip down to verse four they asked something similar about another event or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Okay, so here we are again. What event are we talking about? We don't know for sure. We do know that Siloam was a section of the city of Jerusalem and that water flowed into the pool of Siloam through a tunnel that was constructed by Hezekiah. That we know from the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 20. Apparently a tower, maybe associated with that Roman aqueduct at the time, fell and killed 18 people. And similar to the last incident... The question being asked was whether or not these people were worse than others who were not killed by this incident. And to both those questions, Jesus answers with an emphatic no. You see that in verse 3. No. And no in verse 5. Now, the problem here is what drove these people to ask these things. What drove them to ask these questions of Jesus was actually bad theology, which brings us to point number one. Bad things happen to bad people is bad theology. Uh, Bad things happen to bad people is bad theology. Sometimes the hardest trials are what God uses to produce the greatest fruit in your life. And so if you go through life thinking if something bad happens to a person or if something bad happens to a group of people, clearly it's God expressing his disappointment. It's God judging these people because this happened You're going to misunderstand a lot of what happens in life. The the thought, the notion that bad things that happen to people, it's because they're bad, is very, very poor 
theology. And in your outline, I gave you eight reasons why God allows bad things to happen to you. It could be any one of these eight reasons that these things may happen to you. And they're all for your good and for his glory. Uh, Eight reasons why God allows bad things to happen to you. Number one, God will prove your faith to you and others. He will prove your faith to you and others. Understand that when God allows us to be tested, he's not testing us so he can see how it turns out. Right? Something God never said in his entire existence is, I wonder. So he's not like, oh, I wonder how Peter's going to go here. I wonder how Susie's going to do this. He wonders nothing. He does this to prove to us about our faith. And a great example of that is in the book of Job. And we don't have time to go there today. But if you read the book of Job, it's 42 chapters. Right there in the first chapter. Right there, seven verses into the first chapter. God starts a conversation with Satan. God suggests Job to Satan. Have you considered this man? He's amazing. He loves me so much. God talks to Satan and says, this is a righteous man. And that provokes Satan to bring about trials in Job's life, but they never go farther than the Lord will allow. Sometimes God allows bad things to happen to you to prove your faith to you and to others so that he might receive the glory. Number two, God will teach you to not depend on yourself. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and following, the Apostle Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Sometimes God allows bad things to happen to us. It's not a punishment, but it's to show us that we can depend upon him. When our strength is depleted, when we have no hope, no help, we can truly depend on God who indeed raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Number three, God will remind you of your heavenly hope. Also in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Understand that when he talks about the light and momentary affliction, he's not talking about like allergies, right? He's talking about the fact that he's being persecuted, the fact that his life is in danger. And he's calling it a light and momentary affliction. That's not because Paul, man, Paul's so tough. When those things happen to him, he just calls them light and momentary. Not at all. He's just saying compared with what he has coming and compared with the reason he's doing what he's doing, this affliction, comparably speaking, is light. It's momentary. And it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4, 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Eight reasons why God will allow bad things to happen to you. Could be number four. God will reveal to you who you really love. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles are standing before the council and they're instructing, they're being instructed, being told, you can't preach the gospel anymore. You ought not do this. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And so they revealed, they were encouraged by that. The fact that they would stand before the council, the fact that they would be judged by other people, the fact that they would be told not to preach the gospel and that they left feeling like this was an honor. 
this was an honor to be able to suffer for Christ in this way, reminds them of just how much they really do love Jesus, just how far they're willing to go for the sake of the gospel. Could be number five, God will teach you obedience. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 67 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. You might look back on your life and say, this time of trial when this happened uh, to me was a very, very, very hard uh, period of my life. But you know what? I'm more faithful to God as a result of it. I've seen God work through this trial and I am now uh, more obedient to him. God has grown me through that. And so sometimes God uses these opportunities, these very difficult trying times in our lives to teach us obedience. Number six, uh, through these things, God will show you compassion. Second uh, Corinthians one verses three and following Paul says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort, comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And so we experience the comfort, the compassion, the love of God when he extends that to us during a very real hour of need. Uh, number seven, God will prepare you for greater usefulness. Uh, James chapter one, verses two and following says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And so that's not James' way of saying pray for trials. Oh, bring it. Just hit me again, right? Like that's nowhere in the Bible we say, please pray for, for evil to befall us so that God can show himself to be great. But when you find yourself in a trial, which you inevitably will because we live in a fallen world and sometimes we're a victim of other people's decisions, sometimes we make poor decisions ourselves. When you find yourself in a trial, particularly a trial that's related to your faith, you can count it joy because when we experience these trials, God's going to use it to test our faith. God's going to use it to build within us endurance so that we might be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. Finally, number eight, God will equip you to comfort others. Again, 2 Corinthians 1, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And so there's a variety of actually very positive reasons why God may allow suffering to befall you. Why God does not just stand in the way of any trial that comes your way because he's going to glorify himself through it. And if you look at suffering and you look at trials as the judgment of God, you're going to think that God is punishing you or punishing someone else or punishing whole entire groups of people. When in reality, they may, that may not be the case at all. In fact, for you, if you're a believer, God might be allowing this to happen so that he can do a great, great work in your life. And finally, we remember uh, Romans 8 and verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. 
But here's another thing, though. Oftentimes when people have this bad things happen to bad people theology, it just so happens that the people in question were people they weren't really thrilled about to begin with. So when people look at this group of people, let's say, who are uh, something has happened to them, uh, oftentimes people were not thrilled about this group of people even before this thing happened. They're like, see, there you have it. These people, am I right? And they're really tying in their uh, precept. They're bringing in something to the situation to say, these people who I don't already like have now suffered a calamity, so clearly it's God's judgment upon them. For example, on September 11th, 2001, two planes crashed into the World Trade Center in my hometown of New York City. One into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and one that we believe was headed to D.C., but ended up crashing in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The wind was blowing to the south, which I remember because as I looked to the skyline, I lived to the east of uh, Ground Zero. I saw the smoke going left, going south. The wind was blowing to the south that day. On September 12th, it was a Wednesday, and the wind blew to the north. On September 13th, it was a Thursday, and I remember two things about that day. The wind was blowing to the east. And so two days after the actual uh, the, 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 the catastrophe that happened in lower Manhattan, That wind was blowing into where I lived, and the smoke was unbelievable even days afterwards. Not many people realize the fire burned in some form until December. And so I remember that wind blowing over into Queens and Brooklyn to where I was, and I also got a chance to go into a public high school because the school called and said, would you come and help us do counseling? And I was like, I'm a Christian are you aware of this? Like, I'm bringing a Bible. And they were like, we don't care, man. We just need all the help we can get. And so I got a stack of tracks and a Bible and walked in as if I knew what I was doing and just used it as opportunities to talk to students who were suffering very, very, very real trials at that time. That was September 13th. On September 14th, Jerry Falwell was a guest on Pat Robertson's show, The 700 Club. If you've never seen The 700 Club, keep it up. Where the, <clears throat> where the two of them suggested that the reason this happened in places like New York City and Washington, D.C. was because of homosexuals, abortion rights supporters, liberal civil rights activists, and our court system for having removed God from the public schools were partly to blame for what had happened because, quote, God would not be mocked. Uh, quote, The pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, people for the American way, all of them who have tried to secularize America, Falwell said, I point the finger in their face and say, you help this happen. And Pat Robinson, well, I totally concur, he said. It's a baseless claim. It's a shameful attempt to redirect the nation's hurt and anger towards all of their soapbox issues. I mean, they just threw in everything. Like, why not throw in rain when you're trying to do a picnic as well? Like, and then rain with sometimes that, like, everything that is heavy on their hearts, they just throw in, like, this is why this happened. It's a shameful attempt to redirect the emotions of a nation's hurt and particularly a city towards their soapbox issues while a nation, a people, and quite frankly, my city grieved. Bad things happen to bad people is bad theology. But please don't miss this. I bring this up not just to slam the 700 Club, but I did enjoy that. But that's not the reason I brought this up. 
Something similar was happening in Jesus' day. You need to understand the Jews from Jerusalem and Judea, they looked down on the Galileans to begin with. John 7 and 52, are, are, are you from Galilee too, they asked Jesus. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. These people did not like Galileans to begin with. And so in reality, they were using their bad theology to, to affirm their existing disdain for Galileans anyway. They're like Galileans, am I right? They had it coming, right, Jesus? And so you have to understand, they take that into the situation with them. And then all of a sudden, look at a terrible thing that has happened a terrible thing that has happened to these people and try to have it boost what they already believe about them. See, God doesn't like them either because look at what the Romans did. See, God doesn't like them either because look at how the tower fell. Bad things happen to bad people is bad theology. And you'll look again in Luke 13, Two times Jesus says, no, I tell you, verse three, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse five, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says it twice and he does so because he wants them to know that unless they repent, they too will perish. Not in the same manner, but with the same certainty. That even though they may have escaped the calamities that befell these people, there's certainly a calamity that's headed towards them as well because judgment is coming. But most of the Jewish people were caught up in their works-based righteousness and refused to see themselves as sinners. You see, instead, they were looking at other people as sinners. The pagans were sinners, right? The Romans were sinners. The Gentiles are sinners. These Galileans, they're sinners. Us? I mean, we're not perfect, but we're kind of, a, kind of a big deal. We're in the line of Abraham. We have God's law entrusted to us. It's to us that the Messiah will come, even though they refuse to acknowledge him when he was in their presence. But see, here's the thing. If you're impressed with yourself, you won't be impressed by God. If you're impressed with yourself, you won't be impressed by God. That's a, another aspect of their bad theology. See, if you're thinking that you're kind of a big deal, you won't see yourself as in need of God. In fact, you might think that by accepting Christ, you make God a little better. He's, he's, he, he was, it was a good hire for him to make, to add you to the team. And this was another aspect of their bad Theology. First, they believed that bad things happen to bad people, and that's bad theology. But they also believed that they were kind of cool, kind of all right, kind of righteous, kind of a big deal. And if you're impressed with yourself, you won't be impressed by God. And that's as true for them as it is for you and as it is for me. If you look in the mirror and think to yourself, I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm kind of good. That will not drive you to your knees in prayer. I'm not saying the, the, the correct posture for Christians to be is for people to be like, I'm terrible in every way. I'm as bad as I could be. Woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. But a right understanding of who you are according to scripture is necessary. And these people did not have a right understanding of who they are. And it could, it, this, this applies to anybody in the room, to anybody hearing the message, regardless of age, regardless of socioeconomic status, if you are impressed with yourself, you won't be impressed by God. 
You might be impressed with yourself because you're young and spry and look at the world at your fingertips and the sky's the limit for what you can do. But the sad thing is if you're impressed by yourself, you won't be impressed by God. You might be impressed because you're old and gray and successful, have socks older than the preacher and more money and security than you even know what to do with. And your house is in order and your life is in order and everything is in order and you've dotted every I and crossed every T. And if you're impressed with yourself, you won't be impressed by God. You might be a great student, a model employee, a really fun girl, a really nice guy, a really smart person, a very successful entrepreneur, and you're a lot better than a lot of people, and you probably are. The bar hasn't been set too high for too long when it comes to how to be better than the other guy, right? Like, it doesn't take long for you to look around and see, oh, I think I'm, like, don't point now, right? But it doesn't take, it doesn't take long for you to look around and say, I'm not as good as I can be, but I'm also not her. But listen to me. This is who Jesus has in mind here. It's not the pagan. It's the self-righteous. It's not the immoral person. It's actually the chaste person. It's not the foolish person. It's the smart person. It's the person who has every reason to believe that they're A, pretty good, and B, better than a lot of other people. And Jesus knows that if you're impressed with you, you won't be impressed with God, which is why he says not once, but twice, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Which brings us to our second point. You need to know that you are living on borrowed time. You are living on borrowed time. Skip down to verse 6. Jesus now coming to the end of this sermon, this evangelistic sermon that he began in in Luke 12. He tells a parable. uh, A parable that should have penetrated the hearts of all who heard it and hopefully penetrates our hearts and minds today. Parables are an extended analogy to really drive home one point. It's not allegory where... Every single thing has, a, has like a, a parallel understanding or a specific meaning. Uh, just a story would have been readily understood because particularly to those living in an agrarian society. So let's take a look again at that parable in verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So he said to the vine dresser, look for three years now. Like for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it even use up the ground? But he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it, put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Fig trees were incredibly common in Israel, they're actually still very common in that part of the world. Um, figs and fig trees, fun fact, are mentioned more than 50 times throughout the scriptures. Under good conditions, they could be as tall as 25 feet. 25 feet. I mean, that's a huge tree. And they'd provide a ton of fruit. They were an excellent source of shade. These were uh, uh, something that people really, really enjoyed. And, and verse 6 said that the man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard. And people would have understood that vineyards were well-maintained, 
well-watered, well-fertilized. So this would have been an ideal place to plant this tree. And so you would be thinking like, hey, I think I'm going to plant, you know, I got this vineyard. I'm going to plant this fig tree in this vineyard. And your response would be like, yeah, that's going to be great. It's going to go really, really well. That's an ideal place for you to plant this tree. Things are going to go well. Wait till you see the fruit. Wait till you see the shade. That thing's going to sprout up and it's going to bear so much fruit. It's going to be great. But verse six said, he came seeking fruit on it and found none, which makes uh, no sense at all. In fact, later on in verse 7, he says, what? Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this tree and I find none. So that means for three years, for three seasons, he comes looking for fruit and not only doesn't see a lot of fruit, but sees zero. He's found none. And this has happened three years in a row. And so I think we could understand his frustration, right? We're not looking at him like, calm down, man. Give it some time. He's like, I've given it three years. Three years under an ideal conditions. Three years where the, the, the ground around it has been fertilized and watered over and over again. Three years like every other tree isn't dying. Why is this fig tree? Fig trees are awesome. Why isn't fig tree producing fruit? They bear fruit every year. This one was kind of set up to bear a lot of fruit. And it doesn't bear a little fruit. It bore no fruit. Now, I'm curious. As you read through this particularly in verse 7, where he says, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit in this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, right? Why should it use up the ground? Now, I'm curious. He's either concerned about the fig tree or frustrated with the fig tree. Now, show of hands, how many of you think he's, he's grieved and concerned about the fig tree? Show of hands, how many of you think he's really frustrated with this fig tree? And you have chosen well, right? Like, cut it down. Just cut this thing that's taking up ground where we could plant something else. I'm sick of coming back to this tree and being disappointed. He just wants to cut it down. It's not even worth the ground it's taking up. Verse 8, uh, verse eight says something different. So the man had spoken to the vine dresser, And verse 8, the vine dresser answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also. Let me dig around it. Let me put on manure. Translation, let me do what I've done the last three years, right? That's what I do for trees. This is how I handle this. Let me do it again. Let me try again. If it should bear fruit next year, great, right? We'll quickly forget about the last three years of no fruit. And then next year when there's fruit, all will be well. There'll be shade, there'll be fruit, figs for days. But if not, then you can cut it down. That's where the parable ends. Here's the point. Just like a fig tree has all the reason to bear great fruit, especially under these favorable conditions, planted in a vineyard that would have been really well taken care of, the Jews found themselves in the most favorable conditions to receive spiritual and biblical truth and guidance, given that they were meeting with, watching, and hearing Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. You want a vineyard? Here's your vineyard. Unbelievably favorable conditions. Right? Like if you'd ask Jesus, how'd the teaching go? He'd be like, went great. Went great. It's clear. My illustrations always connect. I don't go too long. I don't go too long. I'm God, you remember, right? So I, I kind of got this. So his teaching was clear, crystal clear, always, and effective. They're hearing the word of God from the very word of God made flesh who was dwelling among them. 
It's as if someone is coming to God. And someone's like, why are you even wasting your time with these people? These Jews, they have every reason to believe. Unbelievably favorable conditions. And yet they bear zero spiritual fruit. Watered? Check. Fertilized? Check. Cared for under ideal conditions? Check. And nothing. Still they don't believe. Still they don't embrace Christ. Still they actually want to kill him. Just cut it down, man. Cut, cut them off. Especially Jesus who had essentially three years of earthly ministry. Like, go, go elsewhere. There's other people who will probably be uh, more favorable to hearing these things. These people hate you. Cut them off. They're not worth your time. But instead of cutting them off, instead of just doing away with them, instead of turning his back on them, the response is this. Verse 8. Let alone this year also. Till I dig around it and put on manure. In other words, there's still time. Right? There's still time. Jesus is still there. Let's give it another shot. I'll do some digging. I'll spread some fertilizer. We'll give it a little TLC. Let's see what happens. Let's give it another shot. It's an illustration of God's unbelievable patience. Of God's unbelievable kindness. Of God's never failing mercy. It's God desiring to give people a chance again and again and again and again and again and again. And that's it. The agains do stop. Do you see that? Look at the parable again, verse 8. He answered him, sir, let it alone, what? Forever. Just keep doing it, man. It's not what it says. It says what? Let it alone this year also. There's actually a, a time constraint put on it. Let's give it another shot. Let it alone this year also. Verse 9. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Give it another shot this year also. Next year, though, we will be cutting it down if it does not work. It's a reminder of God's patience, of his kindness, of his mercy, and of his clock, and of his calendar. He is kind. He is patient. He is merciful. He's slow to anger, which means he doesn't rush to anger. But friends, he does get there. He will get there. He just takes his time in so doing. It's a reminder of God's patience and kindness and mercy and clock and calendar and the fact that everyone is living on borrowed time. Everyone. That's why in this parable, don't miss that word year. His patience is real. His mercy and kindness is real, and it will really run out. It is not available forever. The clock is ticking. The calendar pages are falling. Time is passing. They, according to the writer of Hebrews 9 and verse 27, have an appointment with judgment, for it is appointed for all of us once to die, and after that comes the judgment. And so he wants them to know of God's patience and also of God's plans. They may have escaped the calamities that they referenced before uh, when the Romans brutally slaughtered the Gentiles. They may have escaped the falling of the Tower of Siloam where 18 people perished. But there is an ultimate calamity that is coming that nobody will escape and it is death and it is judgment. 
And so that's the purpose of this parable, to call to their attention. Hey, listen, unless you repent, you're going to, because they're like the Gentiles, am I right? Look at how God got them, right? That was God because they're worse than us, right? Jesus says emphatically in the Greek, he's not like, not necessarily. He's like, oh, no, no. In fact, unless you repent, you're also going to perish. It may not be at the hand of the Romans and it may not be a falling tower. But again, no, unless you repent, you're also going to perish. Translation, you are going to die. Everyone is living on, on borrowed time. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3, if you would. Second Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 9. The word of God says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach what? Repentance. And so by looking at our lives and looking at the world and looking at the things that happen around us and the amount of times that people say it's never been this bad, right? It's never been this bad in trying to interpret the days and the seasons and the hours and the events. I think like, why is God taking his time, man? Like when will he just zap it and make it all better and take us home? What is the holdup? What is going on? And I would venture to say that people have been saying this since Christ ascended to heaven. Every, every season of people have a reason to look at their lives. It's never been like this, man. It has never been like this. Like we've been saying that for the past few years, especially with everything that's been going on in, the, in our culture, in our world. It's never been like this. But I can also remember a day in 2001 when we looked at planes crashing into buildings and thousands of people dying and 12 people from our church going missing. And we didn't know if they were dead or just stuck and saying, it's never been like this. This is like an attack on New York city. This is insane. Uh, 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 A violence befalling our capital city of Washington, DC. This is insane. But then you can go back and you can go to the Gulf war in the nineties and say, see, see what's happening. This is all the, this is, this is what's happening over there with Israel and Palestine and all these other things. It's never been this way. And then you can go back to Roe v. Wade and say, when this pass has never been this way. And then you can find Nixon's resignation and say, wow, this is a sure time of the end of the age. It's never been this way. And then you can go back to JFK's assassination. You could say it's never been this way because we didn't remember Lincoln. But still, it's never been this way. You can look at Vietnam. You can look at World War II. You can look at the stock market crash. You can look at World War II. Do you see what I'm saying? There's always been a season where people have been able to say it's never been this way. Translation, they're saying it's never been this way in my life. But there's always a time for us to look back and to say, wow, this is totally different. Where is God? Why is he not showing up? What's the delay? And 2 Peter 3 says this, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. In other words, listen, 
He is coming. He is coming. Uh, when? We don't know. Many people have been wrong many times. This is totally it. It's definitely coming. And he hasn't. think we would have known by now. What with the sky being ripped open? So... He's not slow, though. He will keep his promise and understand that he is patient toward you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But read the very next verse. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 9 is like so nice. Verse 10 is not nice, really graphic. He's patient. He's kind. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Uh, but in verse 10, he's like, yeah, but there's going to be a lot of perishing. It's going to happen. So you say, so what does this mean for us? Right? Like, are you picturing your vineyard? Maybe you have a vineyard. That's great. I'd love to see it. But how do, we, how do we apply this to us? Well, let's talk about our vineyards. Let's talk generally for a minute. You live in a day and age and place where the word of God can go forth relatively unhindered. At minimum, for the last 10 years, nobody has truthfully been able to say, I don't have my Bible on me. This isn't heaven on earth, but it's pretty sweet place compared to the rest of God's green earth, given the freedoms that we have as citizens of these United States. And even in these uncertain times, you living here, by the way, still makes you the envy of most of the world. You go to a church that isn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but is pretty solid and pretty blessed by the Lord. But... You also live in a day and age in an area where you have a variety of churches to choose from to begin with. Like God's grace is just all over us. And this vineyard is sweet. Whether it's Sunday worship or community group or a ministry team or a mission support team or Young Life or New Hope or Scarlet Hope, I hope you see that there are crazy amounts of opportunities to be with the people of God and or reaching people for God. I'm not suggesting your life is easy at all. My life is not easy at all. I am saying that if you're not bearing fruit, it's hard to blame the vineyard because we're living on the whole and in the main in pretty favorable conditions to bear spiritual fruit. And so I think this portion of scripture is helpful to us for a few different reasons. First, it's an opportunity for us to hear from Jesus, not once, but twice, that unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Verse 3. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Verse 5. It's a warning. It's a, a clarion call to those of us who have not repented. It applies in some way to those of us who have hidden sins in our lives that perhaps nobody knows about except God. And God is calling you to repent. Because he is coming back. And you say, what's that, a scare tactic? No, I'm actually not scared of the fact that he's coming back. If you're scared of the fact that he's coming back, something's got to change. I'm really, really looking forward to him coming back. And I'm not on the planning committee. I'm on the welcome committee. I don't know when he's going to come back. But I'm really excited for when he does. 
And if you hear that he's coming back and you're like, ah, I don't want to think about that, lean into that and figure out why that is. It's not because you're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But is there an area of your life that the Lord is calling you to repent of right now? Is he poking? Is he, and you're like, get away. I don't want to just want to go home, sing the closing song. Is he poking? Is he calling something to your attention saying, we got to talk. We got to make this right. Let's stop now. Let's repent now. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. But particularly if you've heard the gospel, if you have heard throughout your whole life, whether you've been raised in a Christian home or a non-Christian home, but you hear the gospel and the the truth of the gospel telling you that you are a, a sinner by nature and that you're not a perfect person and therefore you can't live up to God's holy standard and that you're hell bound and hell deserving, but God in his mercy has sent his son to live a perfect life, check Die on the cross for our sins, check. Be buried because he really was dead, check. And then rose from the grave, hallelujah, he arose, which we celebrated last Sunday, and says that if you put your faith and trust in him and you believe that what he did on that cross and what he did by rising from the grave was enough to satisfy God's anger, God's wrath, God's judgment coming towards you, if you believe that Jesus Christ really is Lord and Savior, you will be saved. It's great news. It's the gospel. And you can believe any time as long as there's still time. There's still time today because you're alive. But less than 24 hours ago, I preached a funeral. And it was a glorious funeral for a a believing sister at Grace Fellowship Fort Thomas. And we celebrated her homegoing. Not all funerals are glorious. And not all funerals happen when you think they would happen. Oh, come on, pastor, for crying out loud with the scare tactics, huh? It's not a scare tactic. It's just a, it's statistically true that the death toll remains one apiece. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Unless you change your mind about yourself and turn away from your sin, but not just turn away from your sin, but actually turn towards Jesus Christ. This isn't about fix your life. This isn't about stop doing the bad things and start doing the good things. It's turning away from your sin and towards Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through him, John 14 and verse 6. Luke 24, it's in your outline, beginning in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It's a reminder that God is faithful and kind and patient and loving and inviting for now. He hasn't cut you down. He continues to plant, continues to water, continues to fertilize, continues to care. He's not walking around through the vineyard of our lives with an ax, just like chopping away. You're done. You're done. You're done. 
No, he's caring. He's tending the soil. He's giving us ideal conditions to bear fruit, and he will continue to do that until he doesn't. He may not be walking around with an axe in his shoulder, but he does own an axe. And there will be a day when every tree will either bear fruit or be cut down, and that day is the end of your life or when Jesus chooses to return. And so I say to you, based on our text today, from Luke 13, spend less time looking at calamities in this world and trying to tie them to supernatural reasons. And remember the words of our Lord, who in Luke 13, verse 3, says, No, I tell you, unless you repent. He didn't say unless they repent. He's like, look, in, look at yourself. Look in the mirror. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And verse 5 says it again. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And the good news is today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation because you're still alive. It's not too late. You've not been cut off. You can respond to this gospel message. You can look to God and say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. You who are a Christian but have made a poor decision to live the way that you're living. You can look to God and say, grant me repentance. Help me walk. You go to a church that, again, not perfect, but would love to help you walk through repentance so that you can come out of the darkness and step into the light because everything is better than the light because that's what God's word tells us. Because we're in a pretty sweet vineyard. We have pretty favorable conditions. God has blessed you with the ability to hear the gospel. And it's my hope and prayer that you will respond in repentance. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Lord, we're grateful that we can say that. Uh, And that your kindness, your grace strikes fear in our hearts. Uh, It's a reality check. Uh, For those of us, I pray that if you have struck fear in the hearts of the hearers of your message, Lord, would you cause them not to just brush it aside as they go to lunch, but to really think, okay, why does that bother me so much? Where do I stand with the Lord? What am I doing in my life right now that I need to stop? And so, Lord... You do what I can't do. Speak specifically to people, personally, individually. Call to their mind what you would have them do with your word. And Lord, I pray for those who know you not. Uh, Lord, would you save souls? Would you draw women and men and boys and girls, young and old, unto yourself today, for which is the day of salvation, and save people for their good and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.